It's time to start unpacking with a brand new episode of the B Word Unpacked, hosted by the ladies of Good Stock Consulting, Kelly Kim and Ebony. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the B Word Unpacked with Good Stock Consulting. Now, I know I told you guys that we're taking a hiatus this fall to really lean in to the self-care business. You know, we got to walk the walk and walk the talk. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. we had to step back, but we felt so compelled. And honestly, we're so honored to come back to you guys with this very special episode uh, to discuss where we're currently finding ourselves in terms of COVID-19. And there have been so many new developments in the COVID-19 space with the development of the vaccine, this uh, damn Delta variant. Um, Folks are still out here refusing to wear masks out and to get vaccinated. But I think that many people thought we turned the corner this year, but we haven't. You know, COVID is still very real. And uh, we got a lot to unpack tonight. And and I'm blushing on the inside. I know you can hear it in my voice because we got a special person lined up for y'all tonight. But we got a special person lined up. And so I want to share with our listeners how this whole conversation is going to flow. So there's going to be two components. And first, and I am also blushing and incredibly excited about this, we have brought back with us Raquithala Adams, who we interviewed in March of 2020. So damn near 16 months ago, when she was battling COVID-19 and struggling, y'all, to receive the testing and treatment that she needed in the epicenter of the pandemic at the time, which was New York City. So we're going to do the interview first, and then we're going to transition and we're going to ask just some questions about where we find ourselves with COVID from our resident medical expert, Dr. Ebony Jade. Hilton, put the jade in there, y'all. And um, we just got to share that Ebony is a newfound MSNBC medical contributor, and we are immensely proud of our homegirl, right? And so, Ebony, tonight we're going to put you to work off the clock and ask you some questions about COVID. But before we do that, again, listeners, it is an honor to welcome back and to just be in community with Rakitha Lutt. Welcome, Welcome to, to the B-Side. I'm going to ask you, please remind our listeners who you are, where you live, and just kind of a high level update on your experience with COVID and just, you know, where you are today. Hi, um, I'm Rakitha Allen. I am a native New Yorker. I am currently living in the Bronx, but at the time of COVID, I was living, I chose to quarantine with my mom. So I was in Harlem and um, I was at work. I work in direct service care. I'm the director of a senior center. And so we were in the midst of setting up, grabbing go food so that as they were beginning to shut down everything, we could see that they had food, right? We could see that they ate. So we were setting up um, grab and go meals and the people were starting to come in and out. And at that time, it was still kind of sketchy about what masks were and whether or not you needed to wear them. The rule was sort of, if you were symptomatic, you wore masks. If you weren't, you didn't. And so in order to not scare our clients, our staff, we didn't wear masks. And then DIFTA dubbed us essential workers. So we didn't have the luxury of working from home, right? You can't feed people from the house. And so we we were feeding people, we were taking care of everyone, and we were doing really well for like the first two weeks, we were doing really well. And then I think it was probably around March 20th, I think the 18th or the 20th, somewhere around there, I became symptomatic. Um, 
And I didn't realize I was symptomatic. So I started feeling, you know, that flushy fever when you have low grade fever, you feel a little flushed, a little drained. And then it, it got, it was one day I was flushed and feverish. The next day I couldn't breathe. And so I called my doctor and I said, um, I can't breathe. I think I might have COVID. And she said, hang up for me and go to the emergency room. And I said, but I live with a senior. My mom is a senior and I've been staying with her. I can't just go. I don't know what to do. She said, don't touch her. Don't be in the same room with her. And if you're so convinced that you need to be with her, you have to separate yourself into a different part of the house. So it's a big three bedroom apartment. That wasn't hard. That wasn't the hard part. But I get to the hospital. She said, I'm going to send you, um, I'm going to send them some sort of information that will let them admit you. You need to be seen. I have hypertension. I have had a heart attack and I am overweight. So those are all like factors. And I have a couple of autoimmune factors that affect my overall health. So, you know, I was a prime candidate for a real problem. Mm -hmm. And so I go in and I get to the emergency room and I tell them my primary care said, I have to come. I have to be here. And they said to me, um, okay, well, we'll give you, we're not testing people. At that time, they were only testing people whose death was imminent. They weren't testing people who were just potentially ill. And so I said, so what are we going to do? The doctor looked at me and he said, I'm sure of it. You have COVID. He walked me through all of the symptoms and he said, but we can't do anything for you. He said, we don't know what we're doing and you have to go home. And I said, what do you mean? I have to go home. My doctor said, I have to come to the hospital because at least you all could observe me overnight. He said, there's no room to observe you. Every room in the hospital is booked. I said, I can't just stay here in ER. He said, no. He said, because you're not dying. You're only keeping people who are dying. And at that time, they had begun to set up the vans and the trucks outside with the bodies. And so I came outside and I decided, well, okay, I got to go home. And I told mom, you know, you can't touch me. You have to stay away from me. And so you just go in your part of the house and I'll stay here. And so that's what we tried. We did that and we did really well, except I got so sick. Um, The first couple of days, it was kind of like a, just like a bad flu almost. It was just, I couldn't breathe. My chest got heavier. I couldn't, I wasn't hungry. And then the fever started and that was when it got bad. Um, My fever would range from 102 to 103. um, And that went on for the better part of like seven or eight days. And I couldn't breathe. That was the scariest part. I couldn't breathe. I was afraid to fall asleep because I knew that if I fell asleep, of course, I wouldn't wake up. And so I would kind of sit up all night and, you know, pray or I was too weak to really talk. So I was kind of reading a book and um, I did a lot of praying. I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of, you know, you know, trying to figure out why no one could take care of me. You know, my doctor agreed to have a visit, but I was too weak to hold a phone. We couldn't do a face to face. And so um I did uh, finally get access to testing, thanks to Dr. Ebony. She um, said, you know, we've got a place for you to go get tested. But by then I was too weak to get out of the house. I just couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. And so um, I laid there for 21 days. Um, 21 days, I, I was there. This is a little more emotional than I expected. Yeah. But um, for 21 days, I laid there. Life. And um, the hardest, the hardest two things were... One night in particular, I was so weak. I went to the bathroom 
And I couldn't, I was barely able to get there and I was on the toilet and I was throwing up and, you know, it was really nasty. I don't want to be so graphic, but, um, and I was like, if I die in the house, my mother's going to have to live with my body. And um, that was the hardest thing because the coroners weren't picking up people. Oh, I didn't know it was going to be so emotional. I'm sorry. The coroners weren't picking up people. They were leaving them there for days at a time. And my mother's a 75-year-old. She's um, a senior. And she's not. She's a frail 75. She's still got lots of energy, but she's small. And so there was nothing she would have been able to do with me. And so I kind of had willed that particular night. I had decided that I was going to go outside so that if I died outside in the house, outside of the house, that someone would have to come and get me. And um, I couldn't get out. I couldn't get dressed enough to get to the elevator to get downstairs. And so I laid in the bed, I got back in the bed and I laid there and I saw another day and another day led to another day and I'm here, you know, God was faithful and I'm alive and I'm okay. Um, I have a couple of, you know, minor complications, but all things considered, I am super duper grateful. I'm alive and, um, I am grateful at the things that didn't mean so much to you. You know, they mean a little bit more. They're people that mean more. And the things that just aren't so important are really clear now. So that's, that's it. That's testimony. my COVID story. That's a, that's <laughs> I'm alive. That's a testimony. And, um, that is a testimony. Yeah, it's a real testimony. And I'm really grateful to be alive. Um, I don't talk about it, though. No, I, I agreed to talk to you all because you, we were on the podcast discussing how hard it was to get health care. And Columbia Presbyterian was where I went. And they were, as you say, we were the epicenter of the virus. They were also the epicenter of care, right? They were the places that people were sending people because they had the most staff. They were teaching hospital. They had a lot of access. But they, they were not kind to me. And they were not interested. And I haven't really said this to too many people. The resident that treated me, he said, you have to go home and stay for 14 days. He said, and if you make it, he said, then go see your primary care doctor. And I said, are you sending me home to die? He said, well, the reality is you've got a lot of underlying stuff. You're overweight, you're hypertensive. He said, and you know, most of the people who get the virus at this point die. Mm. You know, and so I felt like he sort of said that to me. In some ways, I felt it was because I was a black woman and, you know, I kind of felt like maybe they think we're disposable. That was sort of my emotional response. Yeah. I'm not so sure, though, because literally people were dying at that point. You know, anybody that we heard of, you know, they died. And while I was sick, um, the other thing that's difficult, I guess, is that I got reports of so many people. You know, that was the hard part. You know, the only thing you can do laying in the bed is watch TV or listen to the, to, you know, social media or something. And every day the numbers just kept going up. It was just unreal. And we were, they were clapping. I would, at seven o'clock, I would hear them clap for the workers. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, you made it. You only got a few more hours to the next day. You made it. So that kind of became a signpost for me that, you know, you had gotten through a good part of another day. Um, I'm just going can I can I add that even though a lot of people were dying, I think healthcare providers, professionals 
we can still do that with dignity. I know that everyone's stressed and everyone's stretched, but we chose healthcare to be helpers and you can still aid people in distress with dignity. So you did not deserve to be talked to like that. I don't care what was going on with you. Thank you. And I will tell you your story. You say you don't talk about it much. Your story was one of our highest listened podcast episodes, like over a thousand people listen to your story. And I am convinced that your story motivated someone else to keep going, to keep doing, to keep fighting. And so this doc is forever indebted to you for sharing that because you were in the thick of it. So now looking back as a survivor, because you are a survivor. (laughs) Yes. What are, what are maybe one or two things that you wish people understood about this disease? So it doesn't necessarily have to be like the medical clinical stuff, but just the social stuff. What do you, what do you wish people would understand the people who are still saying COVID isn't real? (laughs) When I finally was able to get to my doctor, we had a, a, that was like the first laugh. Um, She said, I want to smack people that are saying it's not real. (laughs) And that's kind of my sentiment. Like, you know, you don't understand that this is traumatizing. It's a real traumatizing event. I still cannot ride the subway. I cannot go into a grocery store. And I think I'm going to wear a mask or two for the foreseeable future. I don't understand people who are walking around without masks. It doesn't make sense. It confuses me. But back to the original question, um, it's traumatizing. That's what I wish people understood, that the trauma to your body, the trauma to your spirit, um, it's not a simple thing because it's so life-threatening and it's not it's not a bad flu. It's not a bad cold. It really is a life-threatening virus. And it really is insidious. There are a lot of ways that you're affected that you don't pay attention, that I didn't know, you know, like even after the doctors say I'm a long hauler. So I still have bouts of fatigue. Like there are times when I just, I'll be fine. Great day. And then I have to go lay down. I have to stop and just go lay down because I'm tired. Or the other thing is probably the most bothersome for me is what they call COVID brain. I'll be in the middle of a thought, a full conversation, and then I just go white. Like I can't remember what I was saying or I can't remember what I was thinking or I call it white sheet. So I'll be, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And then what was I saying? What was that? And so that seems to be, you know, according to my doctor, that's normal. So it seems to be a normal response, but it's an ever present reminder of how sick I was and the fact that it really affected me, you know, and that's hard. That's that, that part is upsetting. Um, The fatigue I've learned to live with, you know, I just kind of press on. And then when I get tired, I lay down, you know, that's the other good lesson is that it's taught me that you have to listen to your body. You know, and it's good for us. I mean, and I'll go ahead and say this as Black women, we have a tendency to tunnel through and we can do it and we shoulder everything and we press on. It really is a clarion call to us to slow down and to take better care of ourselves. And it's okay. The Rome will not fall. The kingdom will not fall if we rest. So, Amen. Okay. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh, um, 
it's emotional for me to see you. Um, <laughs> and I'm grateful to see you. Um, it is one of those things of, I don't think people realize how emotionally um, traumatic it is for not only patients, but the providers too. Um, after the show, um, we would test back and forth. And, right. um, and I was... And I, even in the testing, you must have been trying to protect me because you didn't tell me you were as sick as you were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so to, to hear that, I'm sorry that you were going through that. Um, and that, you know, we, one of my friends, Reggie, we tried to find resources and not knowing New York, it was difficult. Um, but just trying in the days afterwards to figure out what we could do to try to help you and that helpless feeling. And even in, in seeing you, it's like, um, you know, just thinking about patients that didn't make it, um, that I personally watched. And do you have, um, do you, did you know of anybody that passed away from COVID? And, and with that, did it, how did it make you feel as far as, like, sometimes I, I feel like I have a little bit of even like survivor's guilt or like, why, you know, why not? Do you struggle so with that? So many people, so yeah. many people. Um, I'm a member of a big church and um, so many of our church members passed away. And one in particular, um, she was a singer, choir member. And we all, you know how like, there's somebody in the choir that everybody just loves or everybody oh. just loves. She was that kind of woman. They were celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary. She and her husband got sick right, shortly after their celebration. And both of them went in the hospital. He came home and she did not. She passed away. And so one of the the other traumas has been negotiating spaces after the people that you love are gone. So she was one of the people that I really loved and we're really going to miss. And then there was another lady. Um, She was my crochet friend. So we always talked about crocheting because I love to crochet. And um, we had all kinds of jokes and stuff about how we were going to get together and make plans. And we had even started picking out patterns for the things we were going to make. Um, and I found out that she passed away while I was sick. So that was also part of the, the difficulties is navigating the deaths of people that, you know, like these weren't like far away people. Um, so that was hard. And uh, we, uh, the church reopened last Sunday and I didn't go. I didn't go for a bunch of reasons because they, you know, in a religious aggregation, you can't ask people to prove vaccination. So I don't, I'm not so sure that I want to be there. And then the other reason I didn't go is because I am, the the idea of being in church without so many of those people still upsets me. And so um, maybe, maybe next year, (laughs) maybe after flu season, maybe after January sometime, I'll give it a shot. 2030, maybe in 2030. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Well, the question is, how are you, how are you processing? Like, you know, um, I think mental health in the black and brown community has always been a a paucity of, um, of providers available. Mm -hmm. I don't think people, I don't think black and brown people are adverse to seeking help. It literally is, it costs 150 to $300 an hour to get it. And, And where do you go? And are there black therapists that I feel like I can actually connect with so when you go through something as life-shaking as 21 days at least of being symptomatic from covid Mm -hmm. and then still 16 months later battling when people 
you know, when, whenever people say, oh, I, I now battle with fatigue and some people are like, oh, okay, she's just tired. No, no, no. You got to right. understand what gives your body energy. And that's your adrenal glands, the, the, the little organ that sits above your kidneys that, that regulates your fight or flight, that mm-hmm. tells your body to, to have your heart being able to supply oxygen to the rest of your muscles. When your body is, is fatigued, that's, that's your body saying, I'm not getting the blood flow in a normal way. I'm not getting the oxygen exchange mm-hmm. in a way. Her body is still being taxed every single day based on every what happened 16 months ago. So how do you, how, how have you reached out or have people reached out to you to say, how do we help? I have a whole therapist. Like, right. I'm, I'm that girl. Every okay. week, yes, every we week go. I go to therapy and I yeah. talk and, um, I had her before COVID, um, but I go now and a good portion of our work over the last 16 months has been survivor's guilt. You know, some of it is particularly because so many of our community suffered so much greater, right? Like it was, it was, it's hard to see that your church family, your neighbors, your, your, the people that you know are losing, that you're losing people. My seniors in my center, we lost about at least 10 to COVID. And so that's been really hard. And we've also got quite a few survivors, right? So, but to see their bodies afterward, right? Some robust kind of full people, now they can barely walk, you know? So that kind of stuff has been, that's hard. And I have a good therapist who let me scream and yell and who let me keep asking the question and who kept reminding me that it was not my fault. Right. Because the guilt that you feel is sort of like, well, why didn't I? Or maybe if I had done something different or maybe if I hadn't stayed here or maybe if I had insisted to do something else. Um, my assistant director is a senior at the program we what we work at. And she told me, she said, I'm going home. And so she immediately after as soon as we, you know, I the week before I became symptomatic, she packed up her stuff. She set up the program for grab and go and she went home and she stayed home for the whole year. And I never complained. Right. I was like, good. One, one person we can make safe. I was like, yes. And I kept trying to figure out ways to keep our staff safe. You know, you don't have to come in here, work from the van and work from this office and make sure we're cleaning the van every day. And I bought masks because at that time masks were hard to get. Mm-hmm. And so I brought masks. I found someone who was selling them. I brought some and I gave them to all of the staff. I use my own money, whatever it takes, all of you. I just need everybody to be safe. And even now I, I say to them, you're not wearing your mask today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be driving without a mask. Don't you let the soldier on the bus without a mask. Mm-hmm. Only driving on the bus at a time. You know, I've been really, I'm still, I still feel like, for all of the people who are um, behaving like everything is over, I kind of feel like they're not paying attention. Well, and especially in New York, I mean, you in nationwide, we are looking at one in every 500 Americans has died from COVID. One in every 500. In New York City, you're looking at one in every 200 persons. Wow. In the different borough, it depends on which borough, but you're looking at one in every 200. And when you were talking about our elderly population, the black people who are over the age of, of 85. Now I haven't looked at this statistics in the last probably three months, but at that time it was one in every 56 black people person who was over the age of 55 mm-hmm. or out 55, 85 had died from COVID one in every exactly. 56. That's so, a lot uh, of people. We lost our, gener- we lost a generation 
Um, and, mm-hmm. and like I said, that was a few months. That was actually pre-Delta. So what what we've lost now with those old black souls um, that were supposed to help usher in and tell us about life. Um, yeah, it's, but in New York, though, it's, it's one of which is always so weird to me when I do look at the the news events of the U.S. Open and the concerts happening in New York. And I'm just like, are we so myopic? Like what, what has made it that we forgot what literally is still happening? It's like two planets. It's like we're living in different yeah. worlds. That's, that's can, been can sort of my thought. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a question? You know, how did your mother navigate your illness? You, you know, your mom is a senior. So how she was she able to navigate your illness and how is she doing we are today. She has one of the the reasons that we decided that I we were quarantined together was because at the time I was living in Brooklyn. I was working in Brooklyn and I was living there when I first started, or I was still living there but working in Harlem. That's what it was. I was living in Brooklyn, working in Harlem, and we decided that I would stay up there with her because neither of us has anyone else, right? So we didn't have anybody else that would check on us that we could, you know, and both of us were worried about the other, right? Like, I don't want you by yourself. I don't want you by yourself. And so we decided that I would stay with her. And the illness, um, the first night when I was in the emergency room, she was texting me and she said, if you don't come home, I'm going to come up there. And I said, honey, they're not gonna let you in. So I spent the first kind of few hours convincing her that they wouldn't let her in, you know, but she's, she's a black mama, you know, oh, she was determined that somebody was going to look after her child. Okay. I said, no, don't come. I don't want you in the street. You know, it took, it was a big fight to get her to stay home. And then once I went home, I of course didn't tell her what the doctor said. I didn't tell her that if you make it, I said, well, I got a quarantine for 14 days. So you're going to stay in your part and I'm going to stay here. And so what she did was she, um, she stayed away. Like I, I told her, she said, I can't even hug you. And we were a huggy kind of unit. Like we hug each other just because we want to. I hadn't, I didn't hug her for almost 16 months, mm. not one hug, you know, and I made her stay away from me and she would make, she would boil lemon water for me. Cause I could, the, the lemon water and the orange stuff, when I would inhale it, that would kind of help me breathe a little bit. So she would put it on the stove, say it's boiling and then go to her part of the house. So I could go and go to the kitchen or at night when I, she didn't know this, but I wasn't sleeping so well. So I would hear her and she would tiptoe to my room and she would stand outside my door and I would hear her praying or I would know that she was standing there just to check on me to make sure I was still breathing um, or to see that I was okay. Um, so she did the best she could, you know, she was a mama. Yes. <laughs> she was she was a mama and um and she she's fine. She tested um she's had like more COVID tests than I can count, probably like at this point, at least um during the during the time I was sick, she had one, her doctor gave her one every three or four weeks just to make sure she was okay. Um and all of them are negative. So she's been fine and now she's fully vaccinated. So, um, but she did what mamas do. She, she, anything that she thought I could stand to eat, she tried to cook it um, a couple of times. The night that I was telling you all about before, when I was, you know, thinking I'm not going to make it, she was standing outside the door and I said, you're too close, move back, go away. And she said, but it's getting on my nerves. You're sick and I can't do 
<laughs> oh my god! We gotta love our mama. <laughs> oh my nerves! No, it, now is she in therapy? She's from the old school, you know. Right. They don't talk about their issues. Right. So every once in a while, I talk to it with her. I get her to talk to me and tell me how she felt, and I get her to say things. You know, I get her to, to remind her that we're where I'm. We're as okay as we can be, and I remind her. And she's she's still in mother mode in that regard. She's still like I have to see her more often now, right? I used to could go two or three days without seeing her, but now I have to kind of make it every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, she calls, we talk a little bit more during the day, and she's still very concerned about what I eat. So every week she buys fruit. You know, I also started Weight Watchers. I've lost thirty four pounds since I talked to you. So she's still, um, she buys fruit. Uh, She says, this is good for you. You have to eat fruit. Um, So she's still mothering in some ways. And so I talk to her. She won't do therapy, but she will talk about it. Rakeith, I know we're going to ask some more technical questions from Evan. I was holding it all together until you talked about your mama. (laughs) Shut me down. But I want for those who are just listening and not able to look at you, you are so beautiful tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So beautiful tonight. Yeah. And I want to end our conversation with you with hearing about one thing that has given you joy since surviving COVID. What's the thing that now gives you joy that you may not have felt the same sense of elation before you're about? Walking. Um, walking. I've been walking a lot lately. And so I started off when I first kind of started the journey of trying to walk a little bit. I couldn't walk a block. I would be winded like one block out. I was, uh, you know, but now I can walk up to two miles. Okay. And um, I do it at least two or three times a week. I try and walk at least two miles. Some days I get up to th- almost three. Yeah. So my goal, I've, so walking is a great joy. Like, and, and it makes you appreciate like the sunrise. It makes you appreciate the sunset, you know, and those kinds of things. And the other thing that gives me joy, I've, I've come to realize is some of the simpler things, right? Like conversations with my friends or plants. I have lots of plants in the house now. Yeah. <laughs> um, having something to take care of, uh-huh. you know, that's helpful. Um, and so those are the things I, I look forward to little stuff, you know, that I didn't really, we take for granted, you know, mm-hmm. I take, I used to take for granted a hug from mama, right? I hug her whenever I feel like it, but not hugging her for 16 months. The first time I hugged her, she had been, we finally got, both of us were vaccinated. And I said, you know what? I can hug you. And we held on for minutes. Like both of us were just crying. And we, it was a moment. It was just big because we hadn't, you know, you you take for granted that you can always give someone a hug. So those that doesn't sound like anything monumental. It sounds like everything. Um, it sounds yeah. like a whole book of that sermons. Sounds, yeah, walking is yeah, a that sounds it was, it was It reminds me of one of my patients in the ICU years and years ago. And she had been in the ICU with us for better part of six months. And, um, and it was the last few weeks of her where she was getting to be more and more frail. And um, I was sitting in the room with her and just talk about just just enjoying space with her. And, um, and I asked her, I said, you know, if you had to do it all over again, like what, what is one of the things that you enjoyed like the most, what would you say? 
and she was like, um, what would you do? And she was like, well, if I could just feel the rain. And it was that simple, like we think about, I think when you're facing the end of life, you feel like this is it. It makes you realize that it is those simple, small things that we take Mm -hmm. for granted of walking and seeing birds chirp and hearing someone laugh, like that it makes you stop. And like you say, just be grateful. Giving your mama a hug. Giving your mama a hug. Well, Rakithala, I mean, just this has been moving and this has been powerful. And again, we cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. And me and Kim want you to join us now as we place Dr. Hilton in the spotlight and tap into that beautiful mind of hers. And, you know, Ebony, it's been... 18 months nonstop for you. You know, I often marvel um, that you're still standing. I don't understand how you do what you do and with a smile and then come back to do more and then keep the social justice fight going and then go back to save lives. And so it's been um, as much as it's been an emotional roller coaster for everyone on this call. We know that it's been doubly challenging for you as you truly are on the front lines and what I'm assuming feels almost like a war zone day to day. And so what I what I would love to hear from you right now, just thinking back over the past 18 months and thinking about where we are right now during the span of this pandemic, what has frustrated you the most? And then the flip to that, what in this moment is bringing you hope? Like, what are you hopeful about? So what what are you frustrated by? And what are you hopeful about? Yeah, um, I think what I'm frustrated about is is exactly what Rafaela talked to us about, about the fact that, um, you know, she, when she went seeking help, that it wasn't there. And it wasn't, not, not that it wasn't even there physically, it wasn't there emotionally. It wasn't there um, to make her feel like her life actually mattered. And when you're looking at their studies actually coming out of New York City that showed that um, when, so let me rewind back, Black people, we know that there's been a racial health disparity with COVID-19. Not only we're twice as likely to be um, um, infected, hospitalized, and unfortunately die from COVID-19 than if we're white. And there's been many studies that found that it's not just because we necessarily have even more comorbidities. It it literally is related also to implicit and explicit bias or systemic racism Mm -hmm. and um, whether or not people were being admitted to the hospital. So there's a study out of New York City that looked at um, the patient's race and if they presented to the hospital, if they were admitted to the hospital, what they found was that Black people actually had lower mortality. We were less likely to die if we actually gained acceptance in the hospital versus a white person, which then tells you when you hear stories of many people being sent home and saying, hey, you know, fend for this for yourself for two weeks and figure it out. Um, and it's not only in New York City, Virginia Department of Health shows the same thing that black and brown people are more likely to present to the emergency department, but white people are more likely to be admitted to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's literally on the website. And they state, in quote, despite health providers wanting to treat people equally, they're more likely to take complaints of white patients more seriously than complaints of black and brown people. And it, and it is deadly. So the thing that frustrates me is even not only the hospital systems being racist, all the social determinants of health and the and the policies and politics that play into why hypertension and diabetes 
exists more so in our communities. And then even the vaccine rollouts that we're talking about with, with your mom, like the vaccines as we rolled them out did not prioritize black people getting the vaccines first or brown people getting the vaccines first, even though you guys knew we died at higher rates, you still prioritize white people getting it first. And those are the things that literally keep me up at night um, that has prevented me from being dealing with the emotional consequence of what COVID has been. I don't have time to deal with that right now. I'll deal with that in, in two more years once we address these policies that have to be fixed. And what about on the other side of that? Is there anything that you're hopeful about or optimistic about? And I know we're still in the thick of it, but is there anything on the other side of that coin right now? And the answer could be no, and that's fine, but I'm just curious. And honestly, um, I have to say right now, no, because the thing that was potentially giving me some form of joy was the hope that our kids will be able to avoid this. But we know that the Delta variant has largely impacted our kids. In fact, at this point, 5.5 million children have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And we know that black and brown children are more likely to be infected. We know that black and brown children are three times more likely to die from COVID-19. And when um, Kethila talks about long COVID and her body 16 months later, not feeling the same. Imagine a three-year-old or a four-year-old whose body is still developing, their organs are still developing, and it goes through that level of stress. Um, How does a three-year-old tell you that I feel tired, right? How does a three-year-old tell you I can't taste or smell? Um, How does a three-year-old tell you that my mind went blank? And so what are the learning disabilities that we're going to face with this? What are the what are the consequences of um, of even you know stretching to look at? We know viruses, other viruses carry other consequences. We know um, are there potential for cancers related to this? Are there potential for neurologic injury related to this? When I hear her describe now being able to walk two miles, fantastic. Because her body is getting back to a rhythm. There are some people that, you know, patients that, um, patients, people that write me and say, I still can't do a block yet because I can't breathe. And what does that, again, what does that do to children? So until we figure out something like that, I can't necessarily find joy in it. And I will be lying if I could, you know, like if I said, yes, this gives me joy. Um, because I just don't see America acting like it cares. Yeah. And that bothers me. I think that is the thing, Ab, I'm with you on that one that worries me the most. I know we're coming out of it, but what's truly the long-term impacts? How will this change what our generations look like, how they function? I think of um, when we add COVID on top of the things that we were already combating, mm-hmm. right? Like the chronic conditions. But mm-hmm. when I think about environmental things like the children in Flint with lead poisoning, like now we're adding something else to you. Are our children that survived Hurricane Katrina, now we're adding something else to your trauma. And I just feel like... Um, there's always something and I need, I would love more information about how COVID will impact us socially, environmentally, neurologically, and all the things so we can try to get ahead of it. I feel like sometimes we're always being reactive and it would be great if our public health and traditional medical systems could be a little more proactive on this one. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and accountability tied to it. Again, if, if studies are showing that 
black and brown people die at higher rates, right? Um, right now, one of the things I asked for um, a civil rights lawyers actually on Twitter, I said, is this something that we can file a, um, a lawsuit to say that if race is an independent risk factor and age is an independent risk factor and comorbidities are independent risk factors, and if the government, the federal government that's taken our taxpayer dollars to create these vaccines and distribute, if they are prioritizing age and they are prioritizing the medical conditions but not prioritizing race, then is that a Title IV um, you know, civil rights violation um, of 1964 where it said any federal dollars that are tied to a program, if it's denied by along the lines of race, I want to see if this is something that we can look into because even with the booster shots, they did it again. And I literally mm-hmm. was on yep. with DC earlier this week saying, how are you still rolling this out based on age and based on pre-existing conditions mm-hmm. when you know that Black people in the first six months of COVID-19, we lost three years of life expectancy. We lost three years. Wow. White people lost 1.2 years of life expectancy. We lost three years because we are dying at younger and younger and younger ages. And so we're not in before COVID. We weren't reaching the age of, of literally, if you look at 65 and older, 77% of 65 and older were white before COVID. 9% of 65 and over were black before COVID. So you take us losing our life expectancy of three years. We're not looking to make it to see 65. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's what the United States of America must be okay with if when it came down for us to get these vaccines and then 10 months later, when it came down to getting these booster shots, you are still not saying that black and brown people, since we see that you are twice as likely to die, since we see you're twice as likely to be hospitalized, since we see you're twice as likely to be infected and we know that infection can carry these long lasting disabilities that impact your life, then you should be the first ones in line. But that's why I don't find joy. Because mm-hmm. like James Baldwin says, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. I see what you're mm-hmm. doing. And that's why they call her fire starter. And that's why they call her pistol shooter. Because she is on fire. I see the white coat behind you, Ab, And this feels just like a natural transition based on what you just wrapped up with in long COVID. And so for all our listeners out there who either might have been infected with COVID and now have long COVID or those who might have had a family member who's navigating this, what do you think that they need to know? And what do you think that they need to be either asking their clinician or doing? I mean, I feel like long COVID is still such a mystery, but what what do people need to know and what do people need to do? Well, uh, I think the first thing you know is that they are not alone. I have so many people that have, so I have a couple mentees, um, two of them I'm thinking about in their twenties who literally both of them, one lives um, down, I'll just say one lives in Georgia and one lives in Virginia. Um, But they have, they both independently, they don't know each other, but they both got infected in January, 2021. And they have not had taste or smell since that time. Wow. Um, Since, and they are in their twenties. No, and the way they describe theirs, because uh, it's always so fun to see long COVID and the way COVID infects everybody is just different. Yours was was breathing, right? right? And and inner and fatigue. Um, and theirs, um, literally, that was the only thing they got, right? And people were like, Oh, well, it's just your taste and smell. Yeah, it's just your taste and smell till it doesn't come back. And and it's just your taste and smell till you realize that means it infected my brain. 
and my brain is not working. Um, and they describe really feeling alienated. They're, um, I asked them actually if they would be on this podcast and they are, I don't want to say embarrassed, but they're very reluctant to share their story. And it's almost stigma. like a stigma, Shame. which, is, which yeah. is so unfortunate because I'm like, Americans making people feel guilty about COVID-19 is the craziest thing to me because we, we know that we're, we're looking at 40, and that's the, just the people who've been tested, right? 40 million. We know there's tons more people who never got, in, got a test that you mm-hmm. do. Like, we are all in this together. It's nothing that you should be ashamed of because you took a breath. Um, and, and, and people making people feel ashamed of that is just beyond me. But but both of them describe um, social anxiety, uh, like Rakuthula said. They're, they're nervous about going out and about. But they're more so, though, in a different way than you. Uh, it's, yes, they're nervous about getting infected, um, but they are also nervous because when they smell food, they don't they don't smell in a traditional way. Um, they say like if they if they come around anything that's beef, it smells metallic and rancid. Like it's like it's rotten. Mm-hmm. And if they taste it, they immediately want to throw up. And so um, and both of them said this about like I was I was like, OK, let me get you on a, a group thread so we can talk through which which food groups actually are you can taste and it's okay. Which ones can you like, which spices can you taste? Um, and then, um, and it, and it almost made me feel like it was, it was food with heavy iron content that made them feel like they were going to throw up, but they both lost a tremendous amount of weight because of it. They have mm-hmm. no appetite. They're, they're feel fearful of if the house catches on fire, they won't be able to smell smoke. Um, they can't, determine whether or not food is spoiled or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, actually, her mom has to smell all her food to make sure and she's 20 something. She's moved back home um, because she doesn't. She what do you do? You know, and that's what people and that's one organ system. Okay, talks about another organ system, and it literally can be every single organ in your body has a potential. And there's a, a study called uh, Fair Health. Um, study. You can Google it, look at long COVID. And what they looked at was um, to give you an idea of how many people this involves. They looked at 2 million people who had COVID-19 infections and, um, and tried to determine who has these long COVID symptoms. And what they found was that 23%, so basically one in every four um, persons with COVID ended up developing long COVID. But this, and that's where one of your organs doesn't work in the same way anymore. Or your blood work shows that something is now different. Your cholesterol, your blood pressure is different because you have now um, vasculitis. But the interesting thing was, is um, if people heard Rekwethila's story about how sick she was, they would say, oh, okay, like, I get it. She was real, real sick, right? Of course, she has something that's kind of lingering. But what they found was that if you were hospitalized, 55% 55% of those people ended up having long um, COVID symptoms and where they, um, they diagnosed or they labeled it was four weeks of l- lingering symptom- symptoms. So like a month worth. If you were symptomatic, but didn't get hospitalized like Laquithala, they said that was 27.5% of those people um, ended up having long COVID symptoms. And then of people who had no symptoms at all, when they got diagnosed with COVID. So they were literally, I just went through a COVID testing event. They tested me and found out I was positive. I didn't have any symptoms. Well, 
19%, so basically one in every five of those people develop long COVID. So weeks later, either they started having chronic fatigue issues, mm-hmm. um, they had memory lapses or that COVID brain that uh, people was talking about. GI was a, uh, one of the common things. They had changes to their um, their either the stool habits or appetite changes. Um, they had blood work abnormalities. So they had hypercholesterol. So the cholesterol levels were up or their blood pressure was up showing that um, they had like a vasculitis or inflammation of the blood vessels. Um, yeah, that was one in every five people who had no signs wow. of COVID that they, they wouldn't have gone to get tested in the first place. Um, yeah. So it, this is not going to be, this is really, when we're talking about the pandemic, we've at this point lost, unfortunately, 700,000 lives to COVID-19 in America at this point. When we talk about truly though, the impact of COVID-19, it's going to be stories like Opitla. It's going to mm-hmm. be stories like my mentees that say, Hey, don't forget about me. I, I know it's been two years, three years, four years, my body is still not the same. And mm-hmm. if I'm chronically fatigued, how do you expect me to go back to work? When when it when it tires me to walk two miles, but if I'm a restaurant worker and I gotta work and walk seven to ten miles as I'm going back and forth to tables, mm-hmm. I can up. And what does that mean for insurance companies? What does that mean for hospitals? What does it mean for outside of work? What does it mean for schools and childcare? Like there are so many things. Every industry is connected to healthcare. And I think that's what we've learned through building good stock. But that's what our country needs to learn is that health is essential to to just basic functions in life. And so we have to find ways to keep our, our populations healthy, especially those that are marginalized and those that that do not have access due to things like implicit bias and systemic racism. I was in New York this weekend for the first time. The last time I was in New York City, I flew out on February either 27th or 28th of 2019. So right as the pandemic was striking, I was actually visiting our girl, Alicia. What really distressed me, even though it was a solution about New York, was that when you walk on the street many restaurants in front of them now have these structures. They have these pods for outdoor dining. So imagine a city where before there was no, they, a restaurant might've had four or five seats in front of it where people could sit down, but now they've erected these structures where they can have like 15 to 20 people. So like what frustrates me is that Yes, I appreciate that the restaurant industry is afloat and people still have jobs and that there were solutions. But what I don't understand is if they could figure that out for restaurants, why couldn't they figure that out for people who need to get in the damn door and access health care in the first place? Like just the response of the swiftness with which clearly a solution was found to a problem. Really, I was kind of walking around pissed off during the weekend, because I'm like, look at all of this yep. infrastructure that and was put into place so quickly. And I know it didn't feel quick for everybody in the restaurant industry. So please recognize I'm not trying to downplay that. But that was a quick, tangible, structural solution. 
and we still we still got people that can't get tested. Yeah, but it was still spreading COVID in those little pods, and I'm actually mad they put them out there. Just because you took an indoor restaurant and put it outside and put it in, in a, a bowl, you're still spreading COVID. I mean, but I understand what you're saying. You know, one of the things that frustrated me is when we're talking about um, there were a lot of healthcare providers that were getting on TV um, talking about, oh, it's safe for our kids to go back to school. And it, and it pissed me off because when we think about systemic racism and the impact on the educational system, what we know is that one in every four um, ninth graders who are Black, they are in classroom sizes that have at least 30 to 40 students in that classroom. Right. They cannot spread out. We know that ventilation if, in my elementary school, our windows wouldn't open. Right, right. So how, what are you talking about ventilation? Are you supplying us with, with carbon dioxide um, detectors to try to figure out if we're ventilating this place adequately? Are you supplying us with HEPA filters to, to filter out the air as you're stacking these kids in place? And so the policymakers who had their kids in these private schools where there's only 10 mm-hmm. kids per class and we can, we can all go and space out. Yeah, it was okay for your kid. But again, what about the black and brown kids? that are that are now suffering the consequences that I knew they would suffer back in January and March when they started saying we're going to send these kids back to school anyway. It's like the system did absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And we just jumped into school and I feel like we, we could probably go another hour when we talk about the schools because we have so many opinions about those. <laughs> but we want I think we've given our listeners so much to listen to be packed and it is time to be bothered. Okay. COVID is still with us and she ain't going nowhere no time soon. So in light of this omnipresent pandemic or like the uh, folks like to say the panorama, we'll all have to develop some coping mechanisms, y'all, to make it through this season and to keep on keeping on. Like we said at the top of this, we want to make sure that we're checking in and giving each other space and grace for some self-care. So mm-hmm. let's do a round robin, the four of us on this call right now, and talk about what we're going to do to stay grounded, to stay positive, and to stay focused during this new normal. So I will start with you, Kelly. What are you going to do? Um, I've been doing what Raquithala said has brought her joy. So I spend a lot of time, as y'all know, outdoors, walking, and honestly, that um, it brings me great joy. It brings me calm. It brings me peace. For those folk, um, you know, who might be addicted to having them earbuds in, take a walk without them. Like, let your mind just kind of wander. It's really freeing to not constantly be plugged in and listening to something. Um, And don't get me wrong, I love a good podcast and I, you know, I love a Beyonce remix, but um, just having the space and time to just let my mind wander outdoors has brought me great, great peace. Great peace. Yeah, you love those. What about you, Web? What you doing? Uh, I would have to say the same thing. Um, I, this year have been, and last year, really intentional about being out in nature. And when I say intentional, I literally this year saw the seasons change. I saw the leaves, the first buds start from the wintertime going into spring. Um, and I would talk to them, which I sound weird, but whatever. Uh, but I was like, oh, like, I see you, you know what I mean? Um, and to see like the, the foliage come in nice and thick. And then now the transition into fall, um, I told my neighbor, I was like, oh, we're heading into fall. And she was like, no. Um, and I was like, 
Yeah, um, we are because I saw the. I mean, it, I saw the slightest change from green to a slight, almost hint of yellow to it, and I was like, mm-hmm. I've seen it. But, um, but taking the time to just truly be present um, and be grateful and and thinking about people that have made it, like Rithula, um, yeah, I think that helps me a lot in hoping that you know we've helped to keep somebody here with us so yeah. and speaking of Beyonce Rakithala right. <laughs> 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 she gives me that um, the yellow dress the yellow dress and all I said I'm a survivor that's me I do two things I make a conscious effort to walk mm-hmm. and I do a little bit more intentional socializing. So the social time that I spend, you know how sometimes we used to gather just because, you know, to be, I gather with intention. Like I I spend time with people who are going to bring me joy and we do things that I enjoy. Um, And I don't really invest in, I'm going to go because I have to, Mm -hmm. right? Time is valuable in a different way. So I'm careful and I'm intentional about the way I spend any time. If it's social time, it's going to be social. I will not be stressed on social time. Oh, right. Hello. I'm not going to be stressed on time. No, not at all. The other thing I do is that every night now, I used to like read and work right up until until I went to sleep. Every night for like a half an hour before I go to bed, I sit and I let my day soak in and I kind of wind down. I do the kind of meditative work that lets me rest well. And I do it every day now. Oh. In addition to the walking, as we always said that, but every night before I'm going to a half an hour, I start shutting down, turn off the television, turn off the phone. I don't, you know, I don't, no social, no social media surfing. I just, because I need it. It, It helps me. Well, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a book from um, first Rakitha La first chapter. <laughs> first chapter, first verse. I'm doing the same thing, girl. I am saying no to things that stress me out. I used to work seven days a week, um, literally seven days a week. And now I am choosing one day a weekend and sometimes two where I am not right. doing anything that stresses me out. I'm mm-hmm. going to just choose me and do whatever my mind, body, heart wants to do. Um and it's really been it. relaxing. It's been rejuvenating, really. Um, and I'm excited to see what it looks like in the next year. I might say, hell, I'm taking two weeks off. Okay. I, don't know. I like it. I might take a year off. Y'all gonna look for me. I'm gonna be. <laughs> Everybody's gonna be like, I'm on sabbatical. Hi, <laughs> later. <laughs> we go. We go. We got somewhere to be. That's right. Peace out. Peace right. out. Peace right. out. Well, wow. thank y'all for tuning in. It. As always, be sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms. That's YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And of course, tell us about what you thought about today's episode in our comment section. Let us know if there's another B word that you want us to unpack in a future episode. And as always, until the next time, we want to make sure y'all get vaccinated. If you if you haven't already, yep. wearing your derm mask over your mouth and your nose, tuck all things in, right. practice social distancing. Please, please, please wash them hands. Try to stay positive, y'all, and let's keep unpacking. Thank you for unpacking another B-Word with Kelly, Kim, and Ebony. 
follow The B Word on Instagram at The B Word Unpacked and follow Goodstock Consulting on Facebook and YouTube. Learn more about Goodstock at www.goodstockconsulting.com.